This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in Palliative Care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Hello, everyone. Welcome to one of our PhD in Palliative Care podcasts. My name is Connie Dolan, and I'm one of the faculty for the University of Maryland Graduate Palliative Care Program. And I am joined, as always, today by Dr. Lynn McPherson, who is the director of the graduate program of Palliative Master's Program at the University of Maryland. And today we are interviewing um, one of our colleagues, Chaplain Katrina Scott. Katrina has been a chaplain for 15 years. <clears throat> she was at the Mass General Hospital uh, Oncology Department, but also was a palliative care chaplain liaison. Um, she had, we were excited because she was actually one of the first couple of certified chaplains in palliative care, which um, if you listen to one of our other podcasts, um, there aren't that many of them still after this many years. And so that's a big honor. Um, <clears throat> Katrina actually has an interesting career because her first career was as a cinematographer an editor and a bartender, because we know people are in cinema, they always have to do other things to support that. Um, and so she had a lot of other things to be talking probably to a lot of people and hearing about um, people's thoughts of life. And so then she went to divinity school in sort of her more seasoned aspect of her life um, and had her education at Mass General Hospital. Um, and I actually got to work with Katrina on our palliative care team. Um, I think the other thing that's really important is that Katrina was part of the National Academy of Medicine's roundtable, um, which we will have as resources for you, where they did a series of um, focused um, conferences that would look at different research questions that came off of the 2014 Dying in America report, which was again, one of the seminal reports um, about what it looks like. And we have those for readings. And one of the interesting things about those is that some of the issues from 1997 hadn't really changed in 2014. So it's still been an issue in this country about we're still working towards that. Um, and so Katrina has continued to work in that role is also faculty for the University of Maryland. And so um, we feel like it's so important to think about the different disciplines. So again, kind of thinking about um, what is going on in chaplaincy. So welcome, Katrina. Thanks. Happy to be here. So I've given you a little bit of an introduction. I'm wondering if you want to talk a little bit more about, um, you obviously decided to go into chaplaincy, but then you also were really kind of drawn to palliative care. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Thanks. Um, I, uh, my first day of divinity school, I went to Harvard Divinity, um, was 2000, September 10th, 2001. Wow. So um, it was a big day <laughs> the next day. Um, and I had started my goal of going to divinity school um, as a humanist, I must add, because I'm not theistic, um, was challenged from the get-go. But I really have a belief that everyone has a belief system and that part of empowering people is especially in times of, of trauma or serious illness, 
is to help people to reconnect with what their beliefs may or not be and how they may or may not have changed through those difficult times. And chaplaincy was unknown at that time at Harvard. I, had a, I started a brown bag luncheon with the counseling professor, um, Cheryl Giles, to like kind of promote it as a career because no one ever, I, chaplaincy was seen as a dumping ground. If you couldn't make it as a pastor, you became a chaplain. Um, that's how you got paid. So I, what was a driving force for really changing quite a bit of that uh, was CMS picking up chaplaincy, spiritual care as a hospice benefit. And that drove the market very quickly into people then looking for the, that type of job uh, at end of life care. But very few people were getting trained in it. Um, you know, a couple of units of what's called clinical pastoral education, but really no formal training in um, providing care for people who were struggling at, through a very difficult time. So that became my passion. I also, um, as a young adult, cared for my grandparents and uh, witnessed my grandmother who had dementia, her six-year uh, struggle of living, um, unable to speak, basically, in a vegetative state. And that was um, something that also really shaped uh, my passion for providing quality care for people at end of life. So talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, you were first drawn to, um, or maybe it was just at Mass General, you started with oncology patients and then you really were kind of drawn to kind of working with the palliative care piece. Yeah, my second, um, my first unit of clinical pastoral ed, which is 400 hours of supervised visits in a hospital setting, one of the, the, the settings anyway, um, was at Mass General and I was in the psychiatric unit in vascular care. Uh, my second unit, I fell in love with hospital chaplaincy. So I went right away in September uh, into a second unit while still starting my second year at Harvard uh, over at the Brigham. And I rounded with Janet Abrams. I was really interested in palliative care uh, through meeting patients at Mass General who were struggling. Um, and that's where I met Vicki Jackson. She was a fellow. And uh, that was a real eye-opener for me uh, as far as becoming a person of value on a small team. It was really nice to, to get referrals from other clinicians, not just chaplains or family members. And um, I stayed at Mass General. I went back to Mass General as a per diem. And I ran into Vicki there who said, hey, you should come hang out with us in palliative care. Um, and that's how it started. And I met Andy Billings and um, I was still in psych. And then uh, the person who had been the oncology chaplain became director of the department and I was offered his job. And so I went full-time into oncology in January, 2006. So, um, you know, I, I was glad I had that psych background uh, of dealing with people who really, they weren't on solid ground, let me just put it that way. And I think that's what a diagnosis of cancer puts you in, right? You're, you're just, you're going along and life's like this and you get a cancer diagnosis and you fall off a cliff. And some people are able to reintegrate themselves so that they reintegrate their cancer experiences, just a part of them as, as being receiving your first communion or, 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 or graduating from high school. Uh, but then there are other people that carry uh, that burden throughout their lives and it becomes a real focal point that they still um, 
that's a hump they can't get over. So my role, I found in oncology was just really by listening to people, companioning. Um, and my mantra uh, that I learned from a professor at Harvard was always ask a question you don't know the answer to. So one of my favorite questions was simply in meeting a person for the first time would be, why do you think you got this illness? Why do you think you got cancer? And it could be, um, I live next to a taconite plant or, or downstream, or it could be because um, I prayed to, and this is one of my patients, I prayed to God to take away the illness of my grandchild who was in utero, but diagnosed with an abnormality and the baby came out fine. And two weeks later I was diagnosed with leukemia. So it's my burden to carry. So it's, it's just how people make sense of their illness and if they can learn from their illness, it really is the best thing that could happen, I think. Um, those are pretty amazing examples. And I think, you know, really important for um, our students who are listening to this. Um, uh, you know, I think sometimes people feel like, oh, if people are steadfast in their religion, um, they can find this logic for it rather than the spiritual meaning. And yes. that, even with the technology that we have in healthcare, um, that there is such a deep spiritual meaning to this. And um, so um, I know you and I shared a number of cases, but you know, I, I can think of a number of times where you know, we had a cancer patient who would say, um, I got cancer because I'm atoning for you know, uh, leaving my wife and I'm a devout Catholic. Um, um, we had some others that, you know, really believed that they got their cancer um, for some other reason that they had done something wrong. And I, had so an affair. I had an affair, it was a very right. common Right. And, and so just this interesting, I think what you speak of this humanistic part, whether it's religious or not, what the meaning is, um, which I think, you know, you bring up this really important part of, and you hinted at it, <clears throat> of um, for many years, there was this focus on the physical body, right? And then we kind of moved to the body and the mind. And then kind of opening up to the mind, body and spirit. Um, do you want to kind of talk a little bit about kind of why it's so important to bring all of that together? Sure. Um, one of my pet peeves is when a clinician says, oh, that person has no, they don't believe in anything. Whoa, what do you mean? Everybody believes in something, right? Um, it might be a personal God. It might be a political system. Um, you know, I've met plenty of Marxists. <laughs> that's how they live their lives. And that's what they get their meaning from. Um, but a person's spirit is a way that you can balance your internal what's happening inside to externally what's happening to you, right? So if I have a, a belief in an organized religion that has a belief that um, suffering is good and that suffering can help me to uh, get a direct access to my belief, my understanding of an afterlife, then my goal is not to diss your theology or your belief system, but to help you to hopefully um, be supported by it in a way that's healing, that can that is isn't damning. 
does that make sense? Um, there's a lot of theology out there uh, that people can grab bits and pieces. Um, can I share a story? Would that be okay? Sure. I had, um, I worked quite closely, Mass General had a lot of um, Roman Catholic patients and I was born Roman Catholic and went to a Catholic girls boarding school. So I'd introduce myself as, I, you know, I don't have a collar, but I did go to boarding school and had the nuns. Um, and people would grab onto a particular part of their religion when basically what it was to, to keep another person alive, a loved one alive that in all cases, uh, you know, on event, their feet becoming gangrene, um, really to allow natural, natural death, but people didn't want that because they were holding on to one tenant of their, their organized religion that said, uh, God gave uh, people these machines to help people. So I'm not going to take them off a machine. It would be against God's will. Well, that's, that's really not how it works, but, but people, and so I remember asking our priest, uh, our full-time priest to go in to talk to the, the family and he came out and he said, Katrina, they just can't let their, their dad go. They're using, they're grabbing, they're holding onto this theology piece um, as, as a bulk war, a, a, a wall against, um, against admitting that their dad was dying. And so that was really interesting to me. I learned a lot from him that, that people, that's what you do. You grab at straws when you're desperate. And also the, like the miracle question, right? People don't ask for a miracle if they got a broken toe. They ask for a miracle if their loved one is nearing death. And so I welcome that. And that's always been my goal in teaching is to get clinicians to welcome the miracle question because it, number one, it means that the family knows how difficult the situation is. And number two, you can join them in hoping possibly even praying for that miracle with them, but also acknowledging if that's not to be, what else would you pray for? What else would you hope for? So that gives a person a, a way of, of hopefully reframing that, oh, okay, well, if God isn't gonna allow this, what else would be important to me and my feeling? Well, and I think, you know, one of the things that sometimes I have done is when people say, I want the miracle. I've also reminded them that we may have already gotten some miracles, right? That sometimes we didn't expect people to live that long, that um, we are having more time right now. And, you know, and that, yes, we might have some more miracles, but also reframing sometimes, because you and I both know there are times when people have surprised us. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, you know, I think of, um, you know, I just think of this presence, um, and so for our students, why it's so important to have an interprofessional team, um, because you get into some situations that um, you're going to have to figure out bit by bit, whether clinically, administratively or not, and, and sometimes it might be around different pieces of care, but I mean, I can remember, um, you know, Katrina and I took care of a young man Theo, who the family has let us use his name, who was a man with cerebral palsy and had actually done very well, had been in a work study program. There was a whole bunch of education about this and he ended up getting colon cancer. And I think the thing that was very interesting for us is that um, he was in his forties and his family had spent their whole life making 
life possible for him. They'd outfitted a canoe, they'd outfitted a bike, they'd outfitted this, he lived in a group home. Um, and so here was this, this person that they had put so much into who now had this really significant diagnosis. And um, um, we did the normal treatment and he got worse. And then he ended up um, having a uh, bowel perforation and had to have some um, other procedures. And I think um, the, the moment to me that was one of the most um, important of my career was that um, I ended up taking the family, the mother and the sister to talk to them about what was going on and, and acknowledging how hard this must be. You have spent your whole life for this person. And, and Katrina was able to spend time with a patient alone. Um, and it was one of those beautiful moments where not that I moved the, the uh, mom and the sister to kind of let go, but of like just understanding that this was a change in role. So I had done that little bit, but Katrina actually got the patient to kind of understand how sick he was and to understand that he was gonna make the decision to make it easier for his family. And I don't think everybody was sure that was gonna happen. And it was just one of those moments where we were like, oh my goodness, that could not have happened with a clinical conversation. It really had to happen that you tapped into a spiritual realm in such a poignant way. Um, yeah, and I also think um, it's introducing yourself as the spiritual care member of the team who you know, is not there to do medical work. They're still there to do clinical work, but clinical work with the person's spirit. And for me, it was, he understood my role and I asked him how I could help him and what was most important to him at this time. And he just, you know, with this light, is it called the light board? You know, typed out, um, it, I, I just, I don't know where God is, where's God? Well, you know, that's a, the, the question for the ages, right? Right. Well, and I think though, that's the part of, of uh, sitting with that. And you said, you know, you come from a humanist part, but I would just say in a normal part, like anybody who feels like they have an answer to that, that would make me suspicious, but that's just me. Um, but I think the other part is um, having the capacity to kind of answer that because I can remember, um, you know, I had, worked with many chaplains when I started um, an urban hospice in Boston and we used to do rounds a lot together, which was lovely. Um, I had another chaplain then I was out um, on the um, West Coast when I was in Oregon. And again, just um, very well educated. It's interesting, both of them were women, um, very well educated women who could give this whole holistic part. And then when I came back and started the palliative care program at Mass General, um, the first times that we were asking for chaplaincy, um, you know, we had a priest who was a very good priest, but very uncomfortable with people. And I remember the first time bringing him no. into a patient and he was sort of so nervous and he ended up dropping the Bible. And I, I was just like, okay, this isn't really helping the patient, right? Because they wanted to see somebody strong. And I was thinking, well, what would I do? But I thought, well, I'm not trained in this. And, um, and so, cause the most important question for me that caused me the most con consternation was I had a patient who was from Tennessee and we were having a really difficult discussion because she had uh, significant disease. And she just looked up at me and asked me if I was a Christian. And, you know, 
to this day, I can tell you that I saw my life flashing through me because I'm like, well, am I a Christian? I don't know. I was mean to my kids the other day. You know, sometimes I do, you know, so I'm going through this whole confession, if you will, to like answer, am I a Christian? Am I not? And, 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 I, and for, for me, it seemed like minutes, but probably wasn't that long. And she must have been watching my face, which was, you know, doing that movie. And she said, I just want to know if you're comfortable to pray because I need to pray with you right now. And I felt like such an idiot because I'm thinking, really? You know, um, um, but, but I hadn't been asked that question enough in a patient situation and, and that, um, you know, where that line is that we are taught, we are taught, I don't think in chaplaincy of that personal professional line, where does that line go? Um, so I just sort of be curious if you kind of have some thoughts about how it is that chaplaincy, because you can bring that. And then the second part of the question is, how do we support you in that when we may not be as comfortable like I showed <laughs> of a simple question and like going into panic? Um, I think one of the interesting things for me working at Mass General and rounding uh, with the IDT team was having the fellows and doing joint visits with the fellows to model what a joint visit or to just to simply talk about spiritual care might be. Mm -hmm. And I remember, um, oh gosh, he went to the Brigham after that. Um, I can't remember his name, but he came out of a, a meeting with me and he said, Katrina, you've got the power. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. But it was because they just never, they're just, too busy kind of doing the logical kind of progression of things. Whereas I think the interesting thing about spiritual care providers is that we're used to nuances and following the thread. And, and in prayer, it's one thing, um, some people will pray in rote. They'll pray things that they know by heart. Um, and I would always end with something, if I if I knew it like a Shema or or I, our Father Hail Mary or something, um, to say with the person that so they could join me. But most of the time in prayer, it's really lifting up what the patient has said, what they're hoping for, in a way that they understand that you're 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 lifting up those deepest feelings. Um, and it is interesting. People that are have only been churched by a conservative. Uh, group that that follows a particular pair, prayer or ritual is always kind of surprised and doctors as well um, I remember uh, once uh, being with one of the bone marrow transplant docs with a patient and the patient asked uh, if I would pray and I looked up at him and I said are you comfortable with this and he said yeah sure and I offered a prayer and when I came out and he said if I knew what that was going to be like I, I'd say yes to everything like that he'd never he'd always like <laughs> kind of walk walk out in the room but I kind of put him on the spot by asking him if it was okay knowing that he would be okay um so I just I think there's listening to the patient hearing their fears and letting the patient know that you've heard their fears is probably the most important thing that you can do for a therapeutic relationship between a a, a person to person heart to heart soul to soul um and it really you don't ever, I'll say this again, you don't ever want to tell a person their beliefs are crazy. I had a nurse on um, 
<laughs> one a, a patient who was a colon cancer patient from Haiti, and her beliefs were, you know, basic Santorian that somebody had caused uh, the evil spirit to get into her system to cause this cancer. And the way I was approached to visit the pa the patient was by a nurse who said, "Oh, Katrina, she's crazy," and and you know, so I, I went in and I and I found out that, you know, this woman, her how she got through the day was by reading. Isaiah, she knew Isaiah, the, the chapter of Isaiah in the Old Testament chapter and verse. And she had, she needed some quiet time. So we came up with a schedule. Uh, I went out to tell her nurse that, you know, maybe we need to, I'll get her some audio CDs for when she can't read that she can hear these words. And I, and I looked at the nurse and I said, you know, may I ask, you know, what's your belief system? What, do you follow religion? She said, oh yeah, I'm Catholic. I said, well, you know, you believe in, in, um, what's the thing when they take the devil away from you? Um, I know you know this, Lynn. Exorcism. Uh, Exorcism. Exorcism. Right, yeah, I said so, you know, it, and this is basically what she believes that she has evil in her that, that, that is not of her own volition. So that was an eye-opener for that nurse. So I did a lot of training also as well. I'll just throw this in. Um, I oriented uh, new nurses, every uh, new oncology nurse. They usually would come in groups of four or five and I would be part of their daily orientation. And we also did <clears throat> monthly orientations uh, in a large group with all the new hires at Mass General. They got an hour of what spiritual care was about. Can I ask you a question? Bonnie, sure, go ahead. Yep. So many palliative care teams don't have the resources to have a full-time chaplain. And I hear over and over, well, you know, all chaplains are palliative. You know, just they can, you can just pull in the hospital chaplain. What do you think about that? I, I am with you, Lynn. Um, I think that if CMS would cover spiritual care as reimbursable, like they do in hospice for palliative care, the problem would be solved. In limited resources in hospitals, it's really up to the organization to pick up our tab. And some hospitals, especially a lot of faith-based hospitals, see the value in that. Mm -hmm. uh, in Florida, Seventh-day Adventist groups fully uh, you know, endorse and promote spiritual care as part of their wellness package. And the same at Mount Sinai in New York, they have a very robust uh, program. They call it spirituality and health wellness. You know, I mean, they really tie the two together. Um, but in palliative care um, is a lot different than, you have to be comfortable with dying. You have to be comfortable with your own view of death. And I, I really do believe that a lot of chaplains who are great chaplains, generalist chaplains uh, who don't have a specialty in palliative care, haven't really, uh, aren't really comfortable with dealing with that. Um, Connie, I know the priest you were talking about um, who did that. And, and when I, I, I knew him and I came to him once and I said, you know, hey, this patient is really hopeless. Uh, and he said, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll go up and I'll give him some hope. And I was like, oh, no. no, that wasn't, that wasn't what I was asking for. I was just, you know, I was saying, hey, this person's a, a Catholic, but, you know, is very upset that, that he's so sick that they won't do the surgery. So he just wants to go home and, and drink a bottle of rum and, and die, lapse into a coma. Um, <laughs> and uh, he was, he wanted to fix it. And you know what, this is one of my favorite quotes in the world. It's from, um, uh, Parker Palmer, who's a, 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 a Quaker uh, educator and as well as uh, the 
Quaker theologian, the human soul doesn't need to be fixed. It just wants to be heard. You know, it's as basic as that. So are you comfortable in hearing somebody's deepest fears and not trying to fix them, but to align yourself with them as a wounded healer and to be there with that person? Um, you know, you have to be pretty, you have to be trained in a lot of dealing with a lot of counter-transference that comes up, um, especially in dealing with people that remind you of your family members who have died or who have suffered trauma. Um, and it, it, it takes a lot of work. So I think having a palliative care certified chaplain, it's a lot of hoops to go through, but it's, it's, it's definitely valuable. And we also, I would say a quarter of my time at Mass General was also spent in supporting staff. That's a big part of our job. And I think the more trained you are, the more comfortable you are uh, in supporting people that have a lot of moral distress, especially um, people where their hospital grants patients a lot of autonomy, autonomy and they'll go through with, even though the community hospital has said, no, Mas, we can't do anything else. You know, these patients are on their eighth cl clinical trial and, you know, dying within a week of chemotherapy in their veins. So um, you have to align, yeah, it's aligning people, but also keeping a sense of self. And that takes some practice. So Katrina, you brought up a really important point. Um, you know, taking care of patients is important. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, you were talking about taking care of the team. I think one of the things that, you know, I always worry about is at the same point, we want to take care of our social workers and chaplains and not have them have to be the total caregivers of the team because they need support being a member of the team. So what are your thoughts sort of a little bit on that balance? Because I know you did support people, um, you know, with difficult cases and support of the team. So how do you kind of be part of the team and then also be supporting that team? Um, very similar to a Valiant group. Um, uh, chaplains should receive supervision. That's number one. Um, if not monthly, well, it has to be monthly. It would be ideally, <clears throat> excuse me, two weeks, every two weeks, uh, especially with the director of your department. Uh, and colleagues, you know, trusted colleagues. Um, also education, 50 hours of palliative care education a year um, is mandatory to keep up your credentials. Um, it's fit, it, for regular board certified chaplains, uh, it's still 50 hours, but it's not specific to palliative care. Um, I don't know, I think it really is um, having, knowing where your own supports are um, I do a lot of uh, meditation, my own meditation practice, uh, plus, uh, you know, walking my dog, having uh, a relationship with my, my spouse, my husband, Fred, that really supports me. But it's also um, getting your head around the fact that everybody dies. And I'm there to serve people during that process of dying in a way that hopefully will be goal concordant with what that person wants. So whether it's chemotherapy, like my brother-in-law within a week of dying or uh, choosing to, you know, uh, not have any more treatment and to live your end of life, I don't know, uh, you know, scuba diving or something, <laughs> something crazy. Uh, it, it just, it's supporting people and also knowing that uh, self-compassion is part of the package and self-compassion breeds compassion. Um, I like um, 
uh, Joan Halifax, who's a Buddhist priest, she has a great analogy. It's not, it's not clinician burnout. It's hyper empathy, hyper arousal. You know, when you empathize so much with someone that you become their suffering. And that is another thing that palliative care clinicians need to identify is that um, you can be with suffering and not become that suffering. And it takes uh, a different modality for each person on the team. But we help each other. Right. But I think you bring up a couple of things. And I think it's for membering and palliative care. Um, We get involved but we're not the only team who gets involved with this, right? So we don't have the ownership. We just sometimes are more willing to explore a little deeper. Um, I think the other part is exactly what you just said. Um, We're not the family. We're not that part. And so we have to, we can care, but um, when we become, when the patient has to start taking care of us, that's a problem. Um, um, And we've seen that a couple of times. Um, But I, so I wonder, you know, how are we going to get more interest? Because I hear you say the payment piece, but how do we get more interest in getting more palliative certified chaplains or even if they don't get certified that they are sort of designating their practice of palliative care. What, what do we need to do with that within chaplaincy? Um, Cause that just feels um, that, you know, there's a shortage obviously, and that we're going to need them um, as we go into this crisis of an aging population. Um, there's, you know, I Googled yesterday uh, palliative care chaplains and there were so many entries and questions. How do I become a palliative care chaplain? What is a palliative care chaplain? Um, I, I think the more people experience a family member, an older family member dying in hospice and meeting a chaplain, hopefully that they had a good experience with that chaplain who will under, who will then help them to understand that, that, spiritual care is part of the package. It's, you know, Dame Cicely Saunders' model of total pain and spiritual pain. I mean, there's a big study of over a thousand physicians addressing spiritual suffering as, as being an adds to, to physical somatic pain. And what was the, the outcome of the study? Yeah, physicians acknowledge it, but nobody had an idea of how to help. And I'm like crying out, Get a get someone who's used to dealing with spiritual suffering on your team. Um, I think we've the different professional associations. Uh, I'm, I'm involved in the board certification for palliative cares care, um, and we do outreach programs. We do we have uh, special interest groups. Uh, we have uh, a lot of reach out to chaplains, but I don't know why. I think people are still afraid. I think they um, like to have uh, the backing of their congregation or their church still. And I think a lot of people aren't willing to, to put their foot in the water. They, they're afraid of, of drowning. I have to be honest with you. And so I think the normalization of, of the dying process and death awareness, the conversation project, for example, or, or uh, you know, uh, the card games that are out or, or even um, the Movement for Death with Dignity Act uh, are things that are on people's minds, especially in a, 
in an aging baby boomer population, which I hate to say, but we're all probably part of that, right? On this, in this uh, recording. And so uh, it's, I think APC and the National Catholic Association who are the two bodies that actually have palliative care specialty certification are, are really pushing that. Um, the other groups, uh, there's the, uh, the healthcare chaplaincy, which also does board certification in palliative care. And that's a, uh, that's not a review. You don't have to write anything. It's just a question and answer, uh, almost like an exam to, to gauge uh, your, your knowledge of palliative care, but it's really integration in a team. And I have to go back to the bottom line is you, you get what you pay for, right? And if you're not going to pay for it, you're not going to get it. And, and there is movement. We did a big uh, study with um, uh, NARCS for CMS for the questions about um, uh, spiritual care as part of the questionnaire is in palliative care and the push to, to get CMS to cover the costs of palliative care is reimbursable. I mean, we try. It's a couple of bills in Congress now, so. Um, well, you make me also think about um, one more thing that's really important is that as we think about palliative care, it's really important that we're using our chaplains um, as we think about faith-based palliative care and moving into, so not just people coming to us, but us reaching out to the communities. And that feels like it's a better link when it comes from the spiritual care provider may come from chaplain to their spiritual care provider into the congregation than another way. Do you want to speak a little bit about that? Yes, we do a big, huge, uh, we do a huge outreach program. And I also want to add that the Conversation Project has their own uh, uh, Unitarian pastor, um, Rosemary Hudson, who does, I mean, Rosemary, I can't remember Rosemary's last name, who actually does that. That's her whole role in the Conversation Project is to reach out to other congregations and clergy member members to give them the tools to talk to the congregation. There was also a large study done by Michael Belboni and the group um, at the Farber, uh, along with his wife, Tracy, who's a palliative care uh, uh, researcher, as well as radiologist, that clergy, when, when, when clergy are involved in patient care, those patients offer three times more life support at end of life than hospice. And why? Because clergy don't have the tools to, to feel comfortable in doing an advanced care planning discussion. They'd rather default that to it's part of God's plan and, and life at any cost, um, especially with the decline of people going into to, uh, ordination on an ordination track as more and more people become unaffiliated. You know, the rise of, I, I talk about the rise of the nuns, people that are not looking to join a conversation a congregation or an organized religion. 20% of all Americans, it's greater for those under the age of 30, but 20% of all adult Americans are no longer affiliated. And the other group that's that high of a, of a makeup is evangelical Christians. So it's very interesting. You've got the evangelicals and the people who consider themselves spiritual, not religious. And that's part of my, my dilemma about palliative care chaplains who's gonna care for that demographic when they're hospitalized if they don't have a clergy person who's been trained? It, it's gonna end up being the team that's gonna to have to spiritually support that patient. And a lot of people just um, aren't prepared for that. But I think it's, we're gonna see it more and more, um, which is another push for, for uh, 
palliative care education of, of spiritual care providers, for sure. Wow. And yeah, I remember us having a conversation about this, you know, this de changing demographic and this unchurched, because then what do you do? And, and I was kind of going to the sense of, you know, my vision of palliative care is that we started in the community and we really only go to the hospital if necessary. So if we're really moving that back, then the community is part of it. And then the spiritual religious piece becomes important because if people don't designate, how do you support it so it's just a very interesting process yes and it's all twisted up because you know clergy who have been trained and who have done cpe uh most con most groups except for the catholic church mandate one unit of clinical pastoral education for ordination across the board um uh rabbis uh christian ministers they all have to have that one unit um but it's a general unit right they don't have the dying conversations because, you know, half of half of the people that have palliative care teams want someone on their team who can actually uh, understand what's going on and not that they have to teach. Right. So, so that it's kind of a double bind. You've got you want clergy involved, but you want clergy who are knowledgeable. So then the palliative care chaplain from the hospital has to go out and 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 teach the congregation and the and the and the, the pastor. Um, and hopefully give them a few tools as how to discuss things. But yeah, that's yeah, interesting. That's why they need this program. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think that you know what we're trying to say. So for the students who are watching this. Um, you know, this is this is an interesting part that we do need an interprofessional team. We need all of us, and that particularly when you have some um, of us that I I hear it still. It's like, oh, they have a spiritual issue. I'll call the chaplain. Well, that's if you have one, and if it's not, then you you have to have some competency yourself to be able to kind of be in the room um, and figure out how to learn that. And I think the other part of knowing that you might make some mistakes, um, but you're um, trying to figure out how to have that to be still and to be quiet. And like you said, asking a difficult question um, and knowing that there might not be answers, but some people just talking it through. Um, this has been really interesting, Katrina, because I think this whole clinical realm and kind of thinking, you know, some of the issues of, of um, chaplaincy and pastoral care is that we're going to need more people and when um, there's going to have to be a more of a strategy um, to pull people in. And so, um, you know, otherwise, um, I think the other part I would say is, is, is people talk about doing palliative care, but if you don't have access to, and I don't necessarily mean higher, but access to all the disciplines, then you're doing probably more primary palliative care. And so, you know, we're going to have to kind of recognize that and teams will have to kind of um, understand that if they aren't dealing with the spiritual and the social, that um, they are not dealing with the total pain and, and missing some of that. So that's been really great. Lynn, do you have any last minute questions or thoughts that you want to jump in with? No, I think that was a great overview. Thank you, Katrina. Oh, you're welcome. I, I do just want to say um, my years at Mass General, as well as a lot of my colleagues, they would round with the IDT, they would be there when needed, but they also served other units. Um, you know, I was in oncology, so I'd have relationships with patients for years and then see them at end of life. But having a dedicated palliative care chaplain for your team is as important as having a nurse practitioner or a doctor. It, it truly is because you want someone to focus with your team, with that patient and not getting phone calls and referrals from other clinicians off of on other units. It, it's, 
you're 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 binding someone's hands. It's not quite the binding of Isaac, but uh, you're binding someone's hands and, and providing really great clinical spiritual care. Right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for all that you've done in terms of um, kind of pushing forward the role and teaching a lot of um, clinicians along the way and, you know, all the work that you've done with your patients. So um, we're really, you know, happy that you felt that um, this would really be a good conversation with us. And we really appreciate all that you've offered with us. Yeah. Best thank job. You. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.